Hello, and welcome to the second of the Between the Lines Christmas bonus episodes. There are ten submissions in all, each with its own bend on the Christmas theme. That's enough for me. Let's get right to it then. Muriel sat at the kitchen table looking over the crossword puzzle. Happy in slime, she said. Five letters, Walter said. He was sitting at the kitchen island checking out the audio cassette recorder that he'd bought in 1979. Muriel began to write in what she knew to be the answer. You're rather quick off the mark today, she said. The answer you want is smile, Walter said, pressing down the play and record button simultaneously to see if the recording function on the old device still worked. Testing, testing, he said, speaking into the microphone of the unit that had long outlived its usefulness. Are you fiddling with that because you intend on recording Christmas morning? Muriel asked. Again? Yes, and the Queen's speech. I haven't missed a one since I started this tradition. But, but how many of those old cassette tapes have we ever listened to? You're asking about the Queen's speech? No, I'm asking about any of those tapes. As Muriel said this, a garbling, gargling, scraping noise came out of the cassette tape enclosure on the tape recorder. Walter pressed the stop button and opened the cassette tray door. He pulled out the cassette, or rather he tried to. The tape had become unspooled. It was snarled up within the parts of the machine. Walter put a pencil in the hole on the cassette tape and tried to rewind the mess. <laughs> how many kids these days know how to do this, he said, looking over at Muriel as if he was entitled to some sort of prize. Muriel, for her part, rolled her eyes. How many actually listen to the Queen's Christmas message anymore? We could always buck the tradition. I never knew you for a monarchist anyway. It's tradition, Muriel. Walter fiddled away for another ten minutes before putting the mess down. Oh, maybe I'll buck tradition this year. Oh, Walter, please don't swear. I wasn't swearing. I was making a social commentary on the fact that we venerate a head of state who has barely stepped foot in Canada. Oh, I'm no monarchist, Walter, but she's been here many, many times. It's just like a man to criticize a woman for not coming around enough. I suppose some things are better left untouched, he said in a tone of conciliation. Agreed. But I'm not cancelling my chess game with Hank. You see, from time to time, Walter and Hank would while away the late hours of Boxing Day over a chessboard. The game was accompanied by wee drams of a spirited nectar that tended to make the men call it a draw before the game was over. Oh, what would we do without two chestnuts roasting by the open fire? Oh, Muriel, has there ever been a single Christmas when you haven't made that joke? Muriel looked at him. Quebec Nordiques hockey jersey. Old grubby jeans. Hockey socks. Is there a single Christmas when you haven't had that look? What look? 1970s locker room chic. I represent that statement, Muriel. It's a shame your machine is broken. I'd like to get that admission recorded. Oh, you don't need to, he said. Why not? Exhibit A, Walter said, framing his head with his fingers and dismounting from the kitchen stool to moonwalk across the kitchen. Muriel shook her head. Surely you would be the Queen's biggest jester. Thanks, he said, spinning around and moonwalking back to his perch. But don't call me Shirley. Muriel returned to her crossword puzzle. And to all a good night, she sighed. Hello, my name is Catherine Weinman, and I'm speaking my poem, A COVID Christmas Blessing, from Treaty 6 Territory, sacred ancestral home of the Cree, Decho Dene Métis, indigenous land that was generously shared with my settler ancestors, a gesture that leaves me grateful and inspired. Written last year, this blessing's message 
and unfortunately its context, continue to be relevant this season. A COVID Christmas Blessing May this holy day season bring time to cherish all that is good and true and beautiful. May its dark days invite reflection and renewal. May you be well and safely tucked in with your beloveds at home. May deep rest, fresh air, and sunshine restore you and be like the warm embrace of longed-for family and friends. May moments of anxiety and sadness be held in tenderness with the support of others. May strength in body, mind, and spirit allow you to embrace life's uncertainties. May good health be your companion, relationships enliven and encourage, work and pastimes fulfill, serve, and affirm. May good food nourish your body, favorite memories and meaningful conversations, your heart and mind. May nature welcome you to its beauty, magic, and wisdom. May gratitude, generosity, and grace be your friends. And may patience, love, and kindness, given and received, be yours in abundance. The Christmas Tree by Linda Jandro Do I have a story to tell? I stayed up late last Friday night. I had put the kids to bed at seven. My husband, Larry, fell asleep waiting for me to get the little ones settled in. I was going to watch a movie on television before I tucked myself in, too, but I had all this energy. So I went down to the storage shelves in the basement and dragged out the Christmas tree box. Part of me wanted to just leave that box there until Larry could take care of it, but he and I don't see eye to eye on what a really nice tree looks like, so I decided to make the perfect tree while he slept. I also thought it would be a nice surprise for the kids. I dragged the box upstairs. I pushed around furniture to make room for it in the living room. We have wood floors, so I just needed to lift the furniture enough to slip a blanket under the legs with my feet and shove things around. Took three blankets in an hour, but they got the furniture the way I wanted. Then I set up the tree, branch by branch. If you've only had real, know that it's tedious to set up a fake tree. Each branch has to be fluffed out. That's the tiring part. So I made myself a drink near the beginning, turned on the television, found a Christmas movie to keep me company, and slugged away at it. Once the tree was up, I decorated it. Decorations are a specialty of mine. I knew Larry would have to help me with the ceiling decorations to make sure they're spaced out the right distance apart but I can do equal spacing on the tree to cover up the holes and make it all uniform just fine on my own. Actually, I prefer it that way. I've always thought my way looks best. So, the lights went on. I climbed on the stepladder we keep in the kitchen to attach the star, which is the kind that has bulbs embedded in it and gets plugged into the lights. I keep the lights lit up when I decorate to get the full effect. Then I hung the ornaments lovely glass balls we bought when we were first married. Then I moved on to the icicles. I put icicles one inch apart, 
all the way along the branch. It makes for a perfect Christmas tree. Try it. I'm sure you'll love the effect. When everything was just so, I put on the garland. Time flew by while I worked. I turned off the television when that man came on with the hour-long advertisements. It was getting really late, but that was okay. I imagined how excited the kids would be seeing the tree. They're just old enough to really get into Christmas this year. I hummed to myself as I carefully hung the garland and packed away all the now empty boxes back on the shelves in the basement. Then I was tired, bone tired. I checked in on the kids before I crawled into bed. Two little heads resting on pillows. My angels. They slept through the night with Timmy tucked in beside his polar bear and Duncan's arm around his dinosaur. Not like last week when they had the flu or whatever that was. I looked forward to seeing their happy faces when they would see that beautiful tree. But it was already three o'clock. They'd be up in three hours. Thankfully, Larry would get up with them, I thought, and I got into bed. That was Friday night. I forgot that Larry had a hockey game at the crack of dawn Saturday morning. He woke me up when he left, having fed the kids who were going to be watching Saturday morning cartoons. I'm sure he told me they were occupied, or maybe it was just my tired brain that imagined that as I drifted back to sleep. I woke up to the sound of loud cheering from the under-five crowd and the tinkle of breaking glass. My eyes flew open. That didn't sound good. I grabbed my dressing gown and ran out the bedroom door and down the stairs to the living room and the front hall. First thing I saw was a Christmas ball rolling by, having just left the hand of my son Timmy. His brother, Duncan, cheered as it smashed into the wall at the end of the narrow hallway, creating that tinkling effect I had heard from my bedroom. There was a pile of broken, colored glass accumulated under the hallway target zone. Reds, greens, silver, gold, and blue were all jumbled together. The boys turned and ran for more. I chased them into the living room. The bottom of the tree was a mess. The garland was askew, half of it on the floor. The icicles were strewn across the living room like little piles of silver snow blown around by the wind created from children running to and from the hallway. Maybe three balls remained hanging on the lower branches with a couple more on the skirt below. The stuffed polar bear sat watching cartoons, oblivious to the carnage, or too heavily engrossed in the Flintstones to notice, like the boys were supposed to be. It took me a while, but I cleaned it all up before Larry got back. The broken pieces of glass looked pretty as I swept and scraped them into the trash. I mopped the floors just in case there were shards that the kids could get hurt on. My sons were repentant on their time-out chairs with, I'm sorry, mummy, more like, I sorry, mummy, reaching my ears and melting my heart bit by bit so that by the time Larry got home from his game, I had forgiven them. He watched the kids while I dashed out to buy more decorations just to replace what had been lost. After they went to bed that night, I decorated the tree again. 
It being Saturday, Larry and I stayed up and enjoyed the peacefulness of a decorated tree and a decorated house. We put on Christmas music and danced. It was a lovely evening. We stayed up and enjoyed each other's company. Sunday morning, Larry jumped out of bed abruptly enough to wake me. The sounds of tinkling glass drifted up from the front hall. Oh, no. We made it to the bottom of the stairs to find two little heads and examining the remains of a Christmas ornament that had apparently been silver and green. Then Larry grabbed both boys in football holes and deposited them on the couch. A tiny chorus of, I sorry, Mommy, and I sorry, Daddy, drifted from their mouths as they floated in his arms, which were silenced when they caught their father's eye. He was having none of that. This time, the tree was on its side. The balls, top and bottom, had been used in the latest bowling match. No part of the tree was left untouched. Two penitent little boys sat in silence while Larry cleaned up, and his cleaning was thorough. The tree was stripped of icicles, garland, the remains of Christmas balls and debris, any debris that there might have been. A small pile of intact balls were placed in a basket. Garland and icicles were piled up on the television console. A bare tree was placed upright in the corner with nothing attached to it. I came in from the kitchen to see two small boys silently looking on as their father tied a garbage bag with what remained of Christmas. We ate breakfast in silence. The tree stayed bare all Sunday. Larry insisted we weren't going to waste more money on decorations. I argued that we could put a gate around the tree or something. That night we slept in the same bed, but not on the same page. Larry took the boys skating out to work on Monday. The tree remained bare. Tuesday we went to a children's Christmas party at Larry's work. We came home to a bare tree. The boys, as I'm sure you've figured out, are creative, mischievous, active little people. They keep us on our toes. But a bare tree is an ugly sight. I was going to take it down after the family went to bed on Thursday, but I was too tired and fell asleep in my husband's arms. When I walked in the front door from grocery shopping on Friday, I heard familiar cheers. Oh, no. I looked left and right and was greeted with a new sight. The hallway was clear. The living room looked festive. I noted that the ceiling decorations were up, and not even. Then I saw the tree. The tree was decorated, covered in its own fashion. Garland and icicles had apparently been thrown onto it by an adult male and two little boys, so that nothing was even. There were little baskets tied to the branches with red ribbons, which upon closer inspection had Christmas candies in them. The balls that had survived last weekend were on the highest branches. I was amazed to see the lights that survived and were now lit up. The topmost part of the tree was mostly bare. My husband lifted up both boys 
who tried to place an angel Tommy had made in preschool the day before on the top branch. After a moment's struggle, the three of them got it in place. I stood at the door and surveyed the scene. The room looked cheerful. It was a wonderful brand of decorating with asymmetry and festive design. Our tree. Their tree. It made for a cozy home. So far, the tree has stayed up. Candies slowly disappearing from the lowest branches. At least, the bowling frenzy is over as we look forward to Santa's arrival. Maybe next year I'll decorate with the boys. Or not. Merry Christmas. With love and gratitude. Lynn. Silent Night. I want to be an altar boy. Mama explains that this is not for girls. She signs me up for the children's choir instead. You will like this, dear. You can sing holy, joyful songs of praise to God. I love to sing, so this is okay. My best friend Lee joins too. We sing the most beautiful songs in the world. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me to quiet waters by. We wear long white robes that church ladies starch and iron for us. My brother Tim joins the choir too. Father Douglas leads the children's choir. He is young, bearded, and black-robed. He really likes us kids. To reward us for an excellent year, he takes us to see Mary Poppins at a big theater downtown. When Christmas time comes, we learn carols that make your heart ache. Angels we have heard on high, singing righteously o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous refrain, Gloria in excelsis Deo, Gloria in excelsis Deo. I am happy when I sing. Surrounded by kids from school, 30 voices create a glad-together feeling. Sometimes in church, the adults clap for us. But old Father Reed looks like this may not be the right thing to do. Lee and I have laughing bits at school and in brownies and in church on Sundays. It is easy for us to lose control. 
Sometimes we laugh out loud and the elders punish us. But we behave at choir because we both love to sing. After a few years, we are old enough to perform at Christmas Midnight Mass. We are excited. We sit in side pews reserved just for the choir. The church is peaceful, candlelit, and decorated with poinsettias. Lee and I sit behind my brother and a few older boys with stronger voices. We have to be very, very quiet. The only sounds in the church are a cough, a dropped prayer book, and the voice of Father Reed giving the Nativity Sermon. I look out at rows of joyful Christmas faces. We will sing Silent Night as soon as the pastor is finished speaking. I hear a squeaking sound, very low at first, and then it builds unmistakably to a full passing of gas from my brother. A choir boy glances accusingly at Tim. Tim's shoulders bounce up and down. Muffled laughter hisses from the boys in front. This sets me off. I try so hard not to giggle that my chest heaves in and out, trying to free the howling. Lee covers her face and her hands, and I see that she too is desperately fighting a laughing fit. I dig fingernails into fingertips and clench my teeth. I pray to God to help me. It is time to sing, and the choir is not in unison. It sounds like a few wounded animals sing amongst us. Father Douglas is stern. We recover. We sing beautifully until his face beams a loving, approving smile. When Midnight Mass is over, we wish everyone a Merry Christmas, and it really is. I save this story to tell my brother Tim every single year to make him giggle like crazy, like me. Last Christmas, last Christmas I knew, deep in that place where words don't exist, that place where there's just pure knowing what is. I knew that Christmas was meant to be his last. Mario, Christmas angel, sells trees on the corner, heard William's story, held out a tree, tears in his eyes, said a gift for William. A tree full of life when the hospital bed overtook our space. He would lay day and night in silence, gazing at lights on the tree. Fast forward a year, Weeks before Christmas, he lay in hospice, not of this world anymore. Someone whispered, feigning a smile, maybe he'll make it to Christmas. Just closed my eyes, shook my head twice. I knew, I just knew, deep in my soul, his angels were coming to take him away. As we approach Christmas, I can't help but think of my parents and other loved ones who are no longer with us. It's truly a bittersweet time. Christmas still tops that list of special days where sadness and joy are experienced together. But at Christmas time, there are silver linings, even with grief. There are rituals shared that are wrapped up with precious memories of them. 
As a port operations manager, Dad's busiest days were the week before Christmas. The ship seemed to linger longer then. Mum would be rushing to finish the baking, planning holiday snacks, and touching up the decorations. Dad, bless his soul, worked hard, hoping to send those ships home so he could enjoy Christmas with us. Our parents' goals were the same, though, that there was family time with us. Just before Christmas Eve, the front door would blow open and my father would step inside with a fresh evergreen. Every year, the tree was different, sometimes taller, sometimes shorter and more full, but its scent always graced our house like a magic wand. The frenzy and panic of the days before seemed to vanish. We trimmed the tree together. Dad taught us how to rest a solitary piece of tinsel on each fragile branch. Of course, we'd hang just about every ornament we had. They weren't the energy-efficient ones, but those large classic bulbs were definitely a pop of color. Now I decorate my tree with ornaments from my childhood, whether it was a handcrafted angel made by mum, some felt elves as old as me, or the plastic holly bits that remain from a garland. Their place in our tree is precious. Recently, I hung pictures of my parents in tiny frames among the older pieces. We rolled buttery dough into tiny balls, then flattened them and popped and topped with a dried cherry bit. Eventually, making those cookies became my job, but I lent a hand to prepare the other treats. And Christmas music would always play in the background while we worked. Sometimes, playing those songs at top volume made me a bit crazy. I could hear my mother singing as I approached the house. As I opened the front door, I'd think to myself, how many other kids would come home to this? But really, I felt lucky, and it wouldn't take me long to join her. My heart sometimes aches listening to those tunes now, but I still sing along. It's like my mum is with me still, especially when I hear or sing O Holy Night. She had a beautiful voice, and that's one of my favourite carols. Sadly, I didn't hear it the meticulous gift wrapping from my father. He would cut the paper to the perfect size and fold each corner precisely. I chuckle now as I hastily take the gifts I wrap. Presents always took a backseat to Christmas worship. Only after midnight mass would we be permitted to open our gifts. That's been a hard and fast rule for me today as well. When I pass the fresh evergreens and take in the scent of pine, it brings me back to those nights before Christmas. My heart is wrapped up in all those precious memories, and I am grateful for that. Even if grief will always be a part of me, the pain of loss is now filled more with love. That is the heart of Christmas, and the greatest gift my parents could have left me. The Radio by Jamie Collins The metal shovel screeched on the concrete as I drug it behind me. The people I passed lifted their shoulders toward their ears. They grimaced the sound piercing their brains. I did not care. I had stopped carrying two blocks and five sidewalks ago when the weight of the shovel and the ache in my bones had settled in. I stumbled, looked down, the ground was flat. I wasn't sure what was to blame for the near fall. My boots, hand-me-downs from my father, two sizes too big, or the hem of my pants, also hand-me-downs, cut with scissors to fit. Maybe it was the exhaustion. 
I had been shoveling the heavy December snow since early that morning. Everyone was calling it the storm of the century. For two steady days, the snowflakes had tumbled from the sky. Three feet of snow, of snow had accumulated before it let up late the night before. A gift from the heavens for me. I was determined to squirrel away as much money as I could, piling coins in a metal tobacco tin. The desire to build a nesting had come six months prior. I was a June baby, born as the school year ended and the dreams of long summer nights began. For my twelfth birthday, my aunt and uncle had come to visit, making the trip north from Toronto. My uncle Gunner had handed me a two-dollar bill, smiled, and said, Nelson, I'm so glad you were born. No one had ever implied they were glad I was born. I remember holding the brown $2 bill in both of my hands. I had never had such a sum of money. The possibilities seemed limitless. What would I treat myself to? I ended up choosing to make my way to Diane's, a diner located in the center of town. I stepped onto the black and white linoleum and read the chalkboard. The words scrawled at the bottom seemed to cement the fact that this was destined to be the best birthday. Soup of the day, beef barley, my favorite. I chose a stool at the front counter, slapped my money down, and ordered the biggest bowl of soup they had, the freshest biscuit in the kitchen, and the tallest glass of chocolate milk. The waitress gave me a dazzling smile and served up my requests. I was washing a large bite of biscuit down when a burly man pulled out the stool beside me. He picked up the menu and gave me a sideways glance. Soup good? I nodded. He motioned toward me and called to the waitress. I'll have what he has, minus the milk, make mine a black coffee. Not long after his lunch arrived, he spoke again. What's your name, kid? I swallowed a mouth of soup. Nelson? He stuck out his hand. Vern. I smiled and placed my small hand in his. Nice to meet you, Vern. What are you doing in Wawa? He buttered his biscuit. On the road, crew. Working on Highway 1. My eyes grew wide. You are building a highway? Above his beard, his eyes crinkled as he laughed. Not all by myself. I run the loader. It's going to be something when it's built. Oh? Yep. It'll connect this damn town to the whole country. Whole country? I gasped. Vern nodded. Once that highway opens, you can go anywhere you want. The whole world is yours. I looked at him with awe. Anywhere. It was that moment I set my sights on my future. I was going to make something of myself. I had no real plan, but I knew money was important, and I was committed to making as much of it as possible. The storm of the century gave me a golden opportunity to carry on with my quest. I had woken before the sun rose, ate a small bowl of porridge, grabbed the shovel, and started knocking on doors. Eleven people had hired me that day. Eight of them paid me the quarter I was charging. Three of them gave me cookies or hot chocolate instead. As I dropped each quarter into my pocket, I mentally added it to the tobacco tin stash. In the six months since chatting to Vern, I had a grand total of $9.25. The day was waning. Soon it would be dark. I slowly made my way down Main Street, heading home, wondering when the next snowfall would hit. By tomorrow, most people would have either shoveled their own walks or paid someone else to do it. I was okay. I could wait. Or at least that is what I thought, until I rounded the corner and smack dab in the center of Stan's general store window, 
was the most magnificent item I had ever seen. Perched above a spread of toys sat a small rectangle box complete with a handle on the top, two knobs, a large circular dial on the right, and a striped black and white speaker on the left. Hanging by the two chains above the spread was a large sign that read Christmas Sale. A small sign leaned against the box the bright red rectangle sat on. It read, Emerson Radio, on sale, $12. The shovel dropped from my hands as if a magnet were pulling me. I moved toward the window, my rosy nose pressed against the cold glass. I was consumed by the promises that dial, those knobs, and that speaker contained. What would I hear if I owned that radio? What was there to learn? What sorts of songs and stories existed beyond Wawa that I had no idea about? Twelve dollars. Two dollars and seventy-five cents more than I had. My eyes were fixed on the radio. My mind consumed with different ways to make the money I would need to buy it. Thwap! 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 I jumped. Stan's face was inches from mine on the other side of the window. Nelson, get your face off my window. You're mucking it up. Sorry, Mr. Wilson. I pushed open the front door into the warmth of the store. What on earth were you gawking at, he asked. That there Emerson radio, sir. How many of them do you have? He reached over and plucked it up. This? This is the last one. At this great price, they've flown off the shelves. This model is being replaced next year, so I won't be getting any more in. My heart sank. He flipped it around and held it out. It was inches from my face. You hoping to get it for Christmas? Maybe you should let your folks know it's here. I wanted to drop my eyes to look at the ground, but I could not tear them away from the magnificent box. No. I managed to pull my gaze upward. Maybe you'd lower the price some? I have $9.25. Stan let out a grunt. I'm already close to losing money at 12 bucks. The lowest I could think about going is 11 I did the math. $1.75 short. Could you put the radio in the back until I earn the rest of the money? Gosh, I don't know. I could sell this thing tomorrow for 12 You want me to hang on to it, waiting for you to somehow come up with the rest of the money? I dug into my pockets, pulled out the eight quarters I had tucked away. I held them out flat on my palm for him to see. Look, I made this today, in one day. If it snows again, I'll have your money easy. That's your plan. Wait for it to snow? Who knows how long that will take? And what if it snows on a weekday when you're in school? I can't wait on you. You'll have to take your chances that this won't sell. We both knew if the radio went back into the window display, it would be gone in a day or two. I had to come up with something. My heart pounded in my chest as I blurted out, Give me five days. If I don't come up with the money, that still gives you lots of time to sell it before Christmas. Please, Mr. Wilson, just five days. I'll be back on Thursday with your $11. I promise. And if I'm not, then you go ahead and put it back in the window. What do you say? His eyes went back and forth between my pleading face and the red radio. Thursday, you say? I just don't know. I held my breath. He let out a long sigh. Okay, if you're back here by closing time on Thursday... With the 11 bucks, the radio is yours. Thank you. I ran from the store, 
I needed to figure out how I was going to make a buck seventy-five. Praying for it to snow again was not a good plan. Plus, Dan was right. If it happened on a school day, I would not have time to do seven houses. I picked up my shovel and made my way home. As I lied in bed that night, I went over a million different money-making ideas. Not one seemed like something I could pull off in five days. There had to be a way. I had to have that radio. After a restless sleep, I opened my eyes, and there was one thing on my mind, one name, Mrs. Violet Woodrow. She was a widow that lived three doors down. Maybe she had a way for me to make money. I planned to talk to her at church. The porridge seemed harder to swallow that morning. The time it took for my family to get ready to walk to church seemed to take forever. I was dying to get there, find Mrs. Woodrow, and figure out a way to make the money I needed. As we entered the tiny white church, I spotted her. I pushed past my dad and ran over. Mrs. Woodrow, Mrs. Woodrow, I need to talk to you. She smiled. Nelson, what can I do for you? I took a deep breath and let my words tumble out. I really, really need to make an extra money this week. Well, before Thursday, is there anything I can do for you? Anything at all? What did you have in mind? Well, I don't know, but I'll do anything. I don't have a Christmas tree yet. I have a saw in my back shed. Come grab it on your way home. If you cut me a tree, I'll pay you 50 cents. That sounds great. After church, I collected her saw and asked Dad to borrow two lengths of rope, one six feet long and the other 40 feet in length. He never asked why I wanted it. After lunch of bread, a lunch of bread and butter, I made my way into the bush. It was a challenge, trudging through the deep snow. I examined each tree, picturing them decorated and standing in Mrs. Woodrow's living room. Most were too big, some were too small. A few were the right height, but were too sparse. After pushing deeper into the bush for what seemed like hours, I stumbled on the perfect tree. It was six feet high with thick, lush branches. I got busy running the saw back and forth along the base. Beads of sweat ran down my face. My breath puffed and it out in clouds of steam and my nose ran. As the tree tipped over my, over, my mind was filled with an image of me curled on my mattress, the bright red radio in my hands. I was one step closer to my dream becoming a reality. I smiled and whistled as I tied the 40-foot rope to the base and started wrapping it around the tree, carefully folding the branches as I made my way up. Once I made it to the top, I secured it all with a well-tied slip knot. I tied the six-foot rope to the base and started dragging. The trip back, I contemplated who else I could approach to buy a tree. Once word of mouth spread, I would have my money in no time. When I arrived at Mrs. Woodrow's, I pulled the slip knot, being sure to show off how gorgeous the tree was. I held it by the trunk with my left hand. My arms stuck straight out. I thwapped under her solid wood door. A smile spread across her face and her eyes danced as she greeted me. Nelson, this is the most beautiful tree I've ever seen. Where on earth did you find it? She stepped on the porch. I beamed and motioned with my head toward the bush that bordered the east side of town. Go ahead and lean it against the railing. I won't be decorating it today, so it's fine there. I'll go and get your money. I did as she instructed while she turned to head into the house. Oh, Nelson! Such an incredible tree. I never did expect something quite so nice. Her words faded away, only to be picked up again as she made her way back. Yes, indeed. 
the most beautiful tree I have ever laid eyes on. She stepped onto the porch holding two quarters in her fingers. I pulled my right mitt off and stretched out my hand palm up. She moved toward me and dropped the quarters into my hand. Thanks. Let me know if, you're, if you hear of anyone else needing a tree. You bet. Go ahead and keep my saw for now. You can return it after the holidays. She reached out to touch my shoulder. It was dark as I made my way home. I pushed open the door and looked up at the kitchen clock. It read 6.15. If there had been supper, I had missed it. My family buzzed around. No one inquired where I'd been all afternoon. I made my way to the room us kids shared and flopped into my mattress, hungry and discouraged. The sight of the kitchen clock took away all elation I had felt. I had a big problem. I had school every day between now and Thursday. It was December. The days were short. I did not have enough time to find one more tree, let alone three. After tossing and turning all night and coming up with no solution, my brothers and I headed to school. I slowed down as we passed Mrs. Woodrow's place. I stopped and with a hand motion set my brothers ahead. I stared at the tree leaning against her railing. An idea was forming. A terrible idea, but an idea. I knew it was wrong to even be considering what I was considering. I shook my head and the terrible idea away. I decided it would be better just to sneak away from school that afternoon, get another tree, and see if I could find a buyer. That had seemed like a good plan until that afternoon when my ear was grabbed by Mr. Platt, my teacher. I had not even made it off the school grounds when he pulled me backward. Mr. Morton, where on earth do you think you are going? The day is only half done. I looked up at him. Nowhere. He escorted me back to the classroom, insisting I pull my desk right beside his for the week. There would be no sneaking away from school, not that day and not any day in the near future. When the school day was finished, I slowly made my way home. My mind had been churning all afternoon. I had only one idea, and I hated it. But I really needed that radio. As I passed Mrs. Woodrose, I saw the tree still in the porch where I had left it. I stared at it for a long time. My stomach rolled as I determined I would go back after dark. After the sun had set, I strolled by her place. The tree stood in the same spot. My chest was tight. My heart pounded. Mrs. Mrs. Woodrow was so kind and so wonderful, but the Emerson radio was so bright and so shiny. I swallowed hard and put my plan into action. I ran as quietly as possible toward the porch, praying she was somewhere at the back of the house. I crept up the steps toward the tree, grabbed it by the trunk, and moved as fast as I could. I made my way to my backyard, checking over my shoulder every few seconds. I rolled the tree snugly against the woodpile that was stacked against our home. Carefully, I pulled out the tarp to hide what I had stole. I hated what I had done, but it was done. I let out a sigh and headed into the house. The next morning, I made my way to school. As I approached Mrs. Woodrow's, I took a deep breath, told my brothers I would catch up, and put the second part of my plan into action. I thwapped on her door just as I had Sunday afternoon. The door opened, and I saw her smile as her eyes met mine. What brings you here so early? I plastered the friendliest smile I could muster and motioned with my head toward the spot on the porch where the tree had stood. I noticed you moved the tree inside. I wondered if I could pop in quick and have a look at it all decorated. She leaned over to look behind the open door. Her mouth fell. Oh, no! Someone must have stolen it. This is horrible. That was 
was the most beautiful tree I had ever seen. You must have put so much work into getting it. She stepped back, put both of her hands on her hips. What sort of person would steal a Christmas tree right off my porch? I worked hard to look dumbfounded and upset. Someone stole your tree? That is horrible. I felt like I might puke on her feet as she shook her head. Well, Nelson, this is awful. I will never find another tree as nice as that one. Well, I think if I talk to Mr. Platt, I could leave school early. I know the spot in the bush that has real nice trees. I could get you another. Could you? That would be amazing. Tell you what, if you manage to get me a tree just as nice as the first, I'll pay you another 50 cents. I smiled. Sounds like a good deal to me. She shook her head. What kind of criminals live in this town? Why can't there be more boys like you, Nelson? The school day stretched forever. So far, my plan had worked out perfectly. Did the final piece fall into place? I knew I needed to be the first one home. As soon as the dismissal bell rang, I moved as quickly as I could. I snuck into the backyard, pulled the tree out, and dashed to Mrs. Woodrose. I held the tree out from my body and thwapped twice on the solid door. Her entire face lit up as she opened it. How on earth did you do it? My heart stopped beating. She stepped out to examine the tree closer. This is even nicer than the last. I didn't even think that was possible. You are such a good boy. You will have to thank your teacher for me. I cannot believe he let you leave early. I let out a breath. Yeah, he was real upset to hear someone had stolen your tree. She nodded. Well, I don't have time to decorate it tonight, so just set it over there again. She dug into her apron pocket and pulled out two shiny quarters. I placed the tree in the same spot I had pulled it from the night before and turned to accept my payment. Her smile was warm and bright. I was thankful I had not eaten my lunch. I was certain if I had, I would have lost it right there on her porch. I shoved the money in my pocket, smiled, and offered up a quiet, Thanks. Merry Christmas. I wondered if I could pull this off two more times. I waited for the sun to go down, snuck back over to her house. Sure enough, the tree was still leaning against the railing. I looked left and right and dashed up to the porch, wrapped my hands around the trunk, and quickly took the same route as before back to the woodpile, shoving the tree under the tarp. I did not sleep at all. There was no way Mrs. Woodrow was going to believe the tree had been stolen a second time. The next morning, it felt, felt as though my boots were filled with lead as I made my way up Mrs. Woodrow's steps. This time, I could not muster a thwap. Instead, I gave a soft knock. Her kind face appeared as she opened the door. Here again? How delightful! I swallowed the lump in my throat. Um, I saw that you found time to bring the tree in. Wondered if you would let me have a look at it all decorated. She leaned forward to look around the door. Her face twisted into a scowl. You have got to be kidding me. Those hooligans stole that tree again. I forced my mouth to drop open. No way. She shook her head. What is this world coming to? I stepped back and offered her a solution. Mr. Platt is going to be so upset when he hears about this. I know he'll let me leave early again. I'll find you another tree just as nice. I promise. Oh, that sounds great. Her lips pressed into a straight line. As long as your teacher doesn't mind you missing more class. I nodded. I'm sure once he hears what happened to you, he'll be fine with it. 
Okay then, I'll see you this afternoon. The same as the day before the dismissal bell rang, I rushed home, pulled the tree out, and made my way back to Mrs. Woodrow's front porch. I held the tree out to my left and tapped on her door. Her smiles and eyes conveyed pure awe and joy as she opened the door. Nelson, she breathed, you have really outdone yourself this time. This tree is by far the nicest you have brought to me. She circled me and the tree. There is no way a better tree exists in this entire world. You better better bring it right into my living room. Those thumbs are not getting their hands on this one. My heart sank. After all of this, I was going to be short 25 cents come tomorrow. Stan would put the radio back in the window and all of this would be for nothing. I held back my tears as I carried the tree in. Lean it up in the corner. I'll be right back with your money. She moved toward the back of the house and returned with a big smile. I just cannot get over your work ethic and how you've been such a big help to me. Here's 75 cents. You for sure deserve the extra. A tear slipped down my cheek. I brushed it away. I wanted to thank her, but I could not find the words. What did you need the money for anyway, Nels? I croaked. I have a radio set aside at stands, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Really? Do you have enough to buy it now? I nodded. Would you bring it by on Sunday after church? Show it to me. Have some tea and cookies. Maybe we can find something to listen to. I promised her I would. I kept that promise. Not just that Sunday, but every Sunday until I was 15. And it was on a Sunday that I made my way to the number one highway, a knapsack on my back, my thumb itching to hitch a ride. Before I left, I handed her the radio. You should keep this. I won't need it on the road. She smiled. You love this radio. I know, but I want you to have it. You listen to it on Sundays and think of me. She handed me a packed lunch, a bag of cookies, and motioned for me to bend over. She planted a kiss on my cheek and stepped back. I will never forget you, Nelson. A tear slid down my cheek. A man named Vern sparked the idea that there were possibilities in the world I had never considered. And it was the love of a woman named Mrs. Violet Woodrow that fanned that spark into the flames that would accomplish the life I would live, a lifetime full of joy and endless possibilities. The End Elephant Shoe We're going to be late, the young girl said, firmly grasping the birthday present wrapped in pink paper. Jen had wrapped the parcel in pink because pink was Gwen's favorite color. Jen stomped off ahead of her parents. And why do you have to walk with me? Because it's getting dark, her mother replied. And look, Jen, she said, pointing to the crowded front porch of the house ahead. We're not the only parents dropping off their children at the party. Gwendolyn Joan Matthews and Jennifer Naomi Garland had been best friends since the time they first met on the first day of grade two, just after Gwen's father had moved them to the town. This was the fourth of Gwen's birthday parties, always the night before Christmas. Jen had never missed a one. Can you please hurry up? Jen shouted at her parents, as if they were somehow physically holding her back. We're almost there, her father reassured her, and then you can give Gwen the present. But it can't get cold, she complained. It might break. When the garlands arrived at the house, Gwen came rushing out onto the snowy porch in her stocking feet, Gwendolyn! A voice boomed from inside the house. 
You will catch the death of cold, and I don't need to bury another child on Christmas Day. It was Dr. Matthews, a man whose fondness of joy departed the day he lost a son, Gwen's twin brother, and a wife after delivering their daughter. Since that time, the family had never celebrated Christmas, but he did permit Gwen to have a birthday party so that he could hide in his study with the strong drink that now marked his life. Gwen! Jen shouted out, running up the steps and maneuvering between the adults. Jen, you're the last one to arrive. They're all here. All of them? Even Susie? Susie was the first. Her dad wanted to show off his new car. Well, my dad was not impressed. He grumbled that he didn't go to medical school to stitch people back together because of those things. Jen thrust out the birthday present. Here, happy birthday. And then she leaned in and whispered in Gwen's ear, Merry Christmas. Can I open it? Yes, but not now, after the others have gone. Why not now? Because only you will understand. Okay, but you'll stay as late as I want, right? It's your birthday. Just let me go and tell my mom and dad not to come back too early. After Jen had said goodbye to her parents, she took off her boots, her orange shawl, and purple hat and joined the others around the fire. Susie was reading from a book obviously one that her father had brought back from the city for her to give to Gwen. The others were seated cross-legged on the floor. Jen took up a spot by the hearth beside a small three-legged stool. Behind the stool was a coat tree, one that Gwen had moved in from the hall. At the base of the sacred tree were the unopened presents that her friends had given her, among them the pink box with the pretty bow. As the girls listened to the story, a small figure entered the room from the shadows. He wore a red cardigan, brown corduroy pants, and slippers. He moved silently to the small stool, and before sitting, looked at Jen and at the pink parcel. He pointed at it and then to his chest as if to say, Is that for me? Jen smiled and winked at him, and then looked over at Gwen, who was also smiling and winking. As he sat down on the stool, those who were outside of the house noticed the typical evening glow that occurred on December the 23rd in this part of the world. Some theorized that it was a weather event, Others thought it was the refractive glare of the town's many gaslights. But to two young girls, sitting among others who were oblivious to this phenomenon, they knew full well what it was. Jen looked at the pink box and knew. It wasn't what was inside that mattered. It is what the box brought. She caught Gwen's glance. Gwen was mouthing the words, Elephant shoe. Elephant shoe too, she mouthed back. Merry Christmas. The day was soon coming when all would rejoice, drinking eggnog and hearing the sound of his voice. The kids would soon be gathered all round without the hint of one single sound. Suddenly, from the kitchen came a clattering sound. And then from the doorway, Hey, look what I found! The kids were now feeling a little dismayed at this trick on them which had just been played. A noise was soon heard up high on the roof. Could it possibly be the sound of a hoof? Patiently they waited, hoping they would soon see if this was whom they'd expected it to be. The anticipation was heightened at the doorbell which chimed, but it was only some carolers who sang and who rhymed. This was not who the kids were expecting to see, especially this far from the old chimney. Then suddenly, a noise 
and some dust from the flu. Everyone's wishes were about to come true. The children sat ready with smiles on their faces. Even Mary Jo, the little girl with new braces. Then, step by step, someone came down the stairs. Now everyone's attention was focused right there. After a year such as this, now some joy can be had. And into the living room walked dear old Grandad. Merry Christmas, he said, flinging his arms open wide. And all his loved ones then rushed to his side. Accepting their hugs, he soaked it all in. And fighting back tears, he said with a grin, It's enough to make a man's heart fill up with pride and make him all warm and fuzzy inside. Well, that's it for the bonus Christmas episodes of Between the Lines. I truly hope you were entertained by the efforts of those who submitted. Thank you for listening. From my house to yours, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.